Hello and welcome to this episode of A Glass of Seawater. My name is Bhavan Patel. And today we're going to be talking about superconductors, how they are relevant for fusion and what we use them for. So to my left, I am joined by Alex. Hi, I'm Alex and I do computational modelling of superconductors. Uh, joined by Paul. I'm Paul and I used to do experimental investigations into high temperature superconductors and now work for the Institute of Physics doing outreach and engagement. I should have called you Dr. Paul. Not quite yet. I haven't submitted my corrections. <laughs> Nearly Dr. Paul. Nearly Dr. Paul, yes. And we've got Andy to my right. Yeah, hi, I'm Andy. I'm doing high field measurements of superconductors. So this is up to fields sort of like 35 Tesla range. Uh, so that's about four times the magnetic field of the sun. Some uh, heavy stuff. That's some pretty strong fields. Yeah, it's good stuff. And as well, you could probably hear, most of these guys are some form of an expert on a superconductor. So it's quite, we've got an excellent panel today, which is really, really good. So first, let's talk about how superconductors are relevant in fusion or in MCF. And if you remember, the M stands for magnetically confined fusion. So how are they relevant? What do we use them for? What are they? So in short, we need the magnets to keep all the hot plasma inside, uh, all the hot gas uh, inside a fusion reactor, uh, away from the edges mostly um, of the walls, otherwise it can cause a lot of damage to the parts that make up the machine. Uh, and so we use very strong um, magnetic fields to guide the hot gas uh, into the points of the machine we want to get uh, the heat out, and uh, we need to have very, very strong magnets to do that. Yeah, I mean, you're trying to contain the sun inside a box. So you need to contain it somehow, and the way we do that is with incredibly strong magnets. Exactly. So what's so special about superconductors? Why are they different to regular conductors? What's the difference? So a normal conductor, something like copper, like the wires that are in your house, has resistance. And this resistance means it heats up when you pass an electrical current through it, which we need to do when we're making a magnetic field in an electromagnet. A superconductor has no resistance, so it doesn't heat up, which is the big advantage of using a superconductor. Mm. I mean, there are times when you want this resistance. So, for example, if you've got like an electrical heater at home, all you're doing is you're passing a really high like current through it, which then heats up the wire, which then I don't know, heats up your feet or whatever you're heating up. Absolutely. But sometimes this heat is bad, and sometimes this is actually detrimental for what we're going to do. Why, why does the heat even matter in this case? Why do we not want them to heat up, or what's the benefit? Uh, so I think the main benefit is if you heat, if you have this heating that occurs, um, that heat has to go somewhere, and that then becomes an, another engineering another engineering issue that you have to try and overcome. Uh, it's also wasted energy because any any energy that you're putting into the magnet that then goes into heat is not going into the magnetic field, so that's then a waste of energy. Um, so it makes your plants much more efficient in terms of their energy usage. So you can get factors of sort of 90% reduction in your magnet energy usage by using superconductors. Just because it's not being wasted on heating, which is where yeah. we don't want the energy yeah. to go there. Yeah, so these, um, yeah, so part of the research that I do, uh, I work on, work with very high field magnets. And one of the ones that I've worked on in Grenoble is 35 Tesla. Um, and that's copper, that's resistive. And you're only allowed to use that at night 
because they don't have the grid capacity to power the city of Grenoble and the magnet at the same time. Is that just one magnet? One magnet. Jesus. And the cooling for the magnet to keep it from melting is they divert a local river and pass it through the magnet. <laughs> so, so there's huge, huge amounts of water that goes through this magnet every second. That's a lot of power just for cooling. That's a lot yeah. of... I mean, an entire river is just an insane amount of cooling. Imagine trying to put out a fire and you basically redirect an entire... It's just, it's just insane. Yeah, the, the fact of the matter is, for commercial fusion, if it's ever going to be competitive with other forms of energy, electricity production, you are just not going to be able to do it without having superconducting magnets. Um, you waste, otherwise waste so much energy, as Andy said, um, just heating up, unwanted heating, that you won't produce enough electricity after that to outweigh it. And so for any kind of competitive cost of electricity, mm. you need to have superconducting magnets in your fusion devices. So how do we, how do we get to a superconducting magnet? What's the, what's like, do we have to do anything special to a material? Like, what's the difference? Can we just have them, like, why isn't copper superconducting? That is a very good question. Uh, so the underlying kind of cause of superconductivity um, is if, you, if you've got the answer to that, you're probably going to have a Nobel Prize. <laughs> post. Um, no one really knows, but um, we know some things and we know thing, one of the kind of general rules of thumb is that if something is a very good conductor, it is a, not, is a very poor or not a superconductor. Um, so copper is not superconductive as far as we know um, and as a result it behaves very very differently at very at when we get it um, sufficiently cold um, than superconductors do so as you may remember from way back when you know if you put a bit of a current through a bit of wire and it gets hot copper wire it based on how much resistance it has whereas um, and if you you know that works all the way to down to very low temperatures and you know you basically determined how much current you can put through the wire before it melts. It's mm. determined how quickly you can get that heat heat away from it um, to stop it from 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 burning out. Um, but with a superconductor, when you cool it down, it goes from being relatively high resistance wire, you know, wire or ceramic or whatever kind of material it's made out of, um, to suddenly having no electrical resistance. So you you can pass a current through it, um, and you get no voltage drop across it across that wire across that. Um, across that piece of material um, and therefore you don't get any, in theory, any, any heating in, in that regime or very, very little. Um, so yeah. you're starting with a regular material that has crazy high resistance and then you cool it down and then at some point there's a transition where it goes from having a lot of resistance to basically no resistance. Yeah, so not, not, all, materials, not all materials show that but if it's Superconducting? Yeah. Uh, yes. Have you got like an example of like any common things that might be a superconductor? So for elements, um, things like niobium is an elemental superconductor. Well, it's mercury, right? Mercury, mercury, mercury is the, the first one. Mercury, oh, really? mercury yeah. was the first superconductor. Um, yeah. First discovered superconductor. First discovered right. superconductor. Okay. So if you cool down mercury enough, then you can get basically no resistance. Yeah. Mercury is about 4.2 Kelvin. It's about helium temperature. Yeah. So 4.2 Kelvin. So this is 4.2 degrees above absolute zero, which is the coldest temperature that anything can be. That's like basically the same temperature as space. Yeah, it's slightly warmer than Just space. Just a bit warmer, like a degree warmer. So when we say cool down, we really mean cool down. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we're, like, we're talking like very, very low temperature superconductors. So we tend to operate 
the kind of materials we're talking about, we tend to operate them close to um, liquid helium. Yeah, and this is this is one of the engineering issues with superconductors. Uh, this is one of the engineering concerns that we have with magnetically confined fusion with superconductors is if you're using copper, you can just wrap it around the magnet and put current through it. If you're using superconductors, you have to cool them down, which means you have to then have an entire cryogenic chamber filled with helium that the superconductors sit in, and you have to keep them cold because, as Alex was saying a minute ago, um, these materials aren't superconducting at all temperatures. They have very high resistance and then no resistance. So if you imagine you accidentally heat up a part of the magnet to above the superconducting transition temperature, and all of a sudden you're going through the reverse process and you're going from no resistance to high resistance, a lot of the current then just dumps into the resistance of the, the wire. You get a huge amount of heat just generated and that can turn the rest of the magnet normal. Um, and you can just have all of the magnetic field, all of the energy that was in the magnetic field just gets dumped into the resistance of the superconductor and the whole thing just explodes. So it's like a, a feedback mechanism. If a yes. little bit heats up, that will then in turn heat up the rest of the magnet, which then causes less to be superconducting yeah. and so on and so on. And these are, so these are called quenches, uh, and they happen quite a lot. There's a pretty <laughs> active field out there called quench protection, which is trying to design uh, mechanisms to regulate quenches and stop them from destroying your magnets. But these, this is one of the hard engineering problems to solve. Mm. So what are, what are some of the benefits of superconducting then? So, if, I mean, we've got one very difficult thing that if it does quench, then you lose everything, which is bad. Yeah. Well, wh why, why would we want to go? So we've already mentioned the power losses. Are there any other reasons? Well, the, the core reason at, uh, at the heart is, is, is the power losses, but specifically we can make the strongest magnets using superconductors. So it just with the fact that you can put so much current through them, um, and we're talking enormous, enormous amounts of, of current, you know, compare it to your little bits of wire at home or something, and you've got, you know, a bit of copper probably four times as thick as a uh, man's arm or something, I'd yeah. say. Um, can, the amount of current you can put through a block of copper that big in cross-section, uh, you could put through a high-temperature superconductor of what? One micron thick a micron and four thick. millimetres wide. So 1% the, the diameter of human hair um, it, it, by, by one centimetre wide. So that's... That's kind of an idea of how much current we can put through those, and we, we understand how we can use very large currents uh, to create very strong magnets. Um, and because um, the fusion um, process is, is, mm. is so critically uh, dependent on the applied magnetic field, um, and uh, higher field is, is, has a lot of um, positive effects um, for the fusion, the fusion process, um, we can use superconducting magnets to generate the kind of fields we need to, to get it to happen. So you mentioned that we can get these really, really high fields, and Andy earlier mentioned that we can actually get to 35 Tesla. So have you got any numbers that kind of give you like the reference of what an actual magnet is? Like, for example, how, how strong is the magnetic field of a fridge magnet, or, or the Earth's magnetic field? So the Earth's magnetic field is around 30 millionths of a, of a Tesla um, for, for comparison and a fridge magnet is up at ten thousandths of a, of a Tesla. Right. Um, so we're, we're quite, 
quite a long way yeah. down um, the, the, ch- the chain. So it's, a Tesla is enormous, and yeah. absolutely enormous. Yeah, the, the Tesla is not a very useful unit, um, as Alex was saying, because it's so enormous that realistically no one is ever going to encounter a Tesla-sized magnetic field really in their life, uh, aside from maybe if they go and get an MRI scan, because MRI scanners operate at, I think we said, about one to three Tesla. Um, So that's the only time, really, that you'll encounter a Tesla-size field, and you know how big MRI scanners are. Mm. But like, so fridge magnets are just what? I a correction actually, yeah, they're about a milli Tesla, so it's about a thousandth or five five thousandths of a, of a Tesla. So right. then you've got a factor of a thousand, yeah. just to get to a Tesla. And then the strongest magnet that Andy was talking, or one of the strongest magnets, was that like what? Several That's tens 30. of thousands. Thirty-five Tesla, yeah. So it's like so. ten thousand times stronger than a fridge magnet. So I these are huge forces. I think the records around the f- somewhere between it changes every year, but around. Is around 45 to 50 from memory. It's 45 to 50 for constant yeah. So you do have these uh, pulsed field magnets, which are incredible pieces of engineering. Um, they don't, you can't turn these magnets on and have a massive field for an extended period of time. But the way these pulsed field magnets work is they just charge up um, some capacitors off to one side, basically. And all of a sudden, in the space of about a microsecond, so a millionth of a second, they dump all of this current into the field, into the magnet, um, and they can get up to sort of two, three hundred Tesla. Um, the record for a pulsed field magnet is somewhere in Russia, I think, which is about fifteen hundred Tesla. Oh my god! Whoa, um, that is huge. So the, with the superconductors, we can get to significantly higher fields, which means we can confine our plasmas better, which is generally just a better thing. Like the, the better we can confine it, the hotter we can make it, the more fusion power. And like we said earlier, you actually waste less power by using them. So it's a, it's a double win by going to these superconductors. High field, less power loss. So are we currently using them, any fusion devices? Like, do we see them a lot? Yeah, yeah, so I've, I've been to yeah. one. Uh, K, so there's uh, one famous one, K-Star, uh, in South Korea. Um, currently at, running today, as it were. Um, it, if it's not down for any downtime, but I don't think it is. Um, and that's currently using superconducting magnets uh, in its routine operation. So um, absolutely, we do today use um, machines with superconducting magnets. Um, and we're seeing places trying to migrate over towards them because of the necessity um, that they'll, they'll have um, for commercial uh, fusion power. And I believe um, ITER, which is the future device being built in the south of France, that also uses superconductors. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And this is for all the types of coils. So you've got like your toroidal coils, which generate your toroidal field, and your poloidal coils, which are used mostly for like shaping your plasma. Yeah. Yeah. So the... Uh, the central solenoid is also superconducting as well. Mm. So that, that's that, that's what ramps your plasma current in your yeah. tokamak. So basically you've got three different types of coils. All of them are superconducting because I guess that makes sense. And it should be said as well that um, actually it's not all the same kind of superconductor throughout the device. It's dependent on what the local magnetic field is and the right superconductor is used in, in the right area basically. So... Uh, we don't have to use the same type everywhere. So there are different stresses that you can actually put on the superconducting magnet and that you have to consider. Absolutely. And actually, Paul's PhD was on the topic of looking at how much, how much strain, how much, how much you can bend certain types yeah. of 
superconductor. Um, so uh, with these large electromagnets, the um, we're putting current through them, and that current is producing the magnetic field. But you might know that a, a current flowing through a wire will interact with a magnetic field. So these, the coils that are making up the uh, magnet actually interact with the magnetic field that they're creating and put a lot of stress on the magnet. So the magnet actually wants to blow itself up. They, um, so when they're under these stresses, they, um, they expand a little bit, just a little bit, sort of about 0.3%, maybe less. They, um, but that's enough to change the superconducting properties. So when they're under strain, they, um, they'll be able to carry less current. And if that drops below a certain level, then the magnet will fail. So we need to understand how that's going to work. They, um, not to mention the fact that if they put under too much strain, they'll also shatter completely. Right, so you, you're, you're definitely putting the magnet under a lot of strain. And I mean, if, if it goes under too much strain, it'll just fail completely. Yes. And obviously, if the if it's under too much strain, and then the field starts dropping, that's going to affect your confinement. So it's again, it's a series of feedback loops where you know one thing will have several knock-on effects. So all of these things need to be considered when you're looking at superconductors: how much field you can put them through, how much current you can put through them, what strain they're under, all of these different things. So, have we reached the limit of what we can do with superconductors? Have we peaked? Have we gotten to the best of the best? Is niobium tin and niobium titanium the best we can do? No, we have no idea how they work. <laughs> um, no, but I think Alex said right at the beginning of the podcast, um, if you can work out how superconductors work, if you can explain them, then there's a Nobel Prize in it for you. Um, it's one of the biggest unanswered questions in condensed matter physics is how do superconductors work? So it's this constant process of we want to use these materials in a, in a useful way, but we fundamentally don't understand them so it's difficult to sort of work out how to improve these materials um, because we just don't have that understanding so there's a lot of trial and error involved in trying to make these materials better and we're getting there um, but there's still a long way to go yeah even from practical limits we're down at you know for some of the best materials we're down at about one to three percent or so of the theoretical limit of how much current we can put down these materials which gets even larger when you start to worry about certain certain types of superconductors so the, you know new generation high temperature superconductors and things like that have to be made very in a very different way to the kind of traditional niobium titanium um niobium 310 and the geometry of how we make a wire out of them um is still being researched and still still being uh, improved upon in order to try and get the as much current down an actual macroscopic big block of material, a uh, big big block of cable or something, um, that you know, then just the just the raw material parameters. So yeah. there's a lot of research still going on to you know how do we actually not just have these materials and optimize the core materials, but also how do we optimize the large scale wires as well. You also mentioned something that's, I guess, a bit of a buzzword that you hear a lot is high temperature superconductors. 
Well, what do you mean by high temperature? Well, we, we, we always reference everything relative down to, you know, um, four degrees above absolute zero, our balmy heights of liquid helium. So if, if it's when we say hot, uh, high temperature, we mean much above that. So, you know, we, we talk when we're talking about some of the most the most uh, popular ones, the biggest ones, things like um and copper oxide, which is kind of um, main tapes. Um, we're talking about temperatures above um, that of liquid nitrogen. So, you know, a whole, what, 77 degrees above absolute zero instead. Yeah. So still absolutely freezing down yeah, at, yeah, yeah. Uh, just shy of minus 200 degrees but, um, Celsius. But that's that's the kind of, when we talk about high temperature, that that's what, what we're talking about. And some people argue that we should be talking about high field rather than high temperature. But uh, th that, this is the kind of new materials we're, we're talking about because I have significant, the raw material properties allow it to carry significantly more current in the ideal case than our, our more conventional materials but they're much harder to work with and i think so there's also a, a natural uh, segregation really between the high temperature and the low temperature superconductors because back when the low temperature superconductors were discovered which were the first superconductors to be discovered um, some very clever people came up with a theory called bcs theory to try and explain low temperature superconductivity and it works um, and from this theory you can predict a maximum transition temperature for, supercon for superconductivity um, and you get something like 35 to 40 Kelvin so then when these, to these high temperature superconductors were discovered with transition temperatures 90 Kelvin-ish um, it just went in completely in the face of all theory uh, around superconductivity and blew the door wide open again as to how do these materials work. So whatever is causing superconductivity in the high temperature superconductors is a fundamentally different physical process. Um, and so that means it's quite natural to separate them out um, from the physics of it. So, I mean, ITER, which we mentioned earlier, is using low temperature superconductors or LTSs. And then are these high temperature superconductors or HTSs or the um, HTS tapes because they're often found in the shape of literally tape. Yes, they are. They're very strange compared to a normal wire. They um, to see a sort of a very what looks like a very thin strip of copper. They um, that's only a few millimeters thick air wide and sort of a tenth of a millimeter thick. They um, that inside of it has a millionth of a millimeter of superconductor. They, um, it's a little bit different to a normal wire. <laughs> and how, how do they compare to low temperature superconductors? Are they better? Are they a lot better? Are they the same? Like what's the, what's the main differences? In general, if we're talking about how much current they can carry, they, um, which is generally what we're interested in when we're talking about magnets and fusion, they are a lot better. They, um, but how good they are and how much current they can carry depends on what temperature you choose to operate them at. So whilst they have a transition temperature of 90 Kelvin, they um, actually, so we might want to run them at say liquid nitrogen temperature at 77 Kelvin because we can and it's a lot cheaper. But actually if we run them at liquid helium temperatures at 4.2 Kelvin, we can put hundreds, possibly thousands times more current through than we can up at 77 Kelvin.
Right, so the colder they get, the more current you can put through them. Exactly. So it would make sense to operate them essentially as cold as feasibly possible. Yeah. Right, so in a, in a future device, there's not going to be a real difference. They're not going to be operating at 90 Kelvin. You'd still have them operating at like tens of Kelvin, maybe even like four or five Kelvin. Yeah, but you do have the option to run them slightly higher, at a slightly higher temperature. So one of the issues uh, looking at fusion toward the future is the supply of helium, which is a concern because helium is not easy to come by they, um, and is very expensive. So if we can use a different coolant instead of helium they, um, that's more sustainable, maybe works at 10, 20. They um, would still be getting enough current with these high temperature superconductors, but we wouldn't have the constraints of that helium resource there. Are they being used anywhere at the moment? Have we? Do we have any physical devices that use this, like YBCO or Rebco, which is another example of these tapes? Yes, mainly in research magnets, however. So I think there's there's a couple of areas where they're used. They, um, so the first area is what we're talking about in magnets. There are plenty of plans for them to be used in much higher field devices, but at the moment they're pretty much constrained to um, research magnets. So a magnet designed to do more research in high magnetic fields and investigate the very materials that they're made out of, actually. Right, yeah. <laughs> they, um, there's also power conduction. They, um, so um, power on the grid. They, um, it would be great if we could transport power on the grid without losses as well. There's research going on into whether we can replace our grid networks with superconductors. Um, and the final place where they're used is also in the power grid. It's what's called a fault current limiter. And this is a device that can be put into the electrical grid that essentially acts like a fuse. So if you put too much current through it, it'll force the superconductor to become normal, the, um, at which point the... It stops the conduction basically. Okay, so there's a lot of more. There's a lot of HTS uses currently like being like considered. It's not just fusion that we're looking at into. No. Um, with a with an actual fusion device, you imagine that they're gonna you need large amounts of this tape. So, what is the production capabilities of HTS? Are we able to make them in in like vast amounts yet? That is a great question, um, and it's. It's one where you know if we had to roll out a device tomorrow, then yeah, that we wouldn't have a we wouldn't the production capability isn't there. Oh. Um, but it, the, the the one of the key developments and why HS materials, if you pardon the pun, have become such a hot topic um, recently <laughs> is because the fabrication methods to generate these tapes and these tapes have to be um, consistently made over you know kilometer length scales. You know they're very 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 long stretches of continual production um, to, to, to get the kind of single single tapes um, in, in one go and they it, one of the reasons it's become such an interesting topic now is because they're getting consistently um, production is, is becoming much more cost effective and if there were a, a large demand and a large, large uh, research project which demanded it um, it's kind. It, the idea is that 
we're approaching the level where some some big project which demanded it would kickstart that that in that production process. Um, uh, but it's not quite there yet. But we've had that in the past with with other superconductors. I mean, Nibium um, three tin production um, basically was very small before uh, ITER came along. Yeah. And um, I can't remember how many times the world production level until that point they they needed. Um, but it was it it's been produced for ITER. Um, so it, we've been there before, um, and it's it's supply and demand basically. Right. Um, so it, they the, the, but the the key thing is whilst they've ex- these materials have existed for a long time, they've existed since you know the eighties. Why they've become so interesting recently is because the production capability in how to make these into usable components has significantly improved, and there's an enormous amount of de- development to the point where they're starting to become technologically mature enough to be able to be used in this you know the first generation kind of kind of uh, components but yeah they're they're on that cusp of transitioning from a research material to a commercial material they're right at that stage where since the 80s they've been research materials and and now they're starting to become commercial Um, so it's a really exciting time for superconductivity at the moment how has this um, impacted the cost of superconductor materials? Because I think, well, in especially in like ITER, like the, the, the magnets are a significant total cost of the production. I think, I mean, you mentioned earlier... I think it's about a third, but I would need to double-check that right. number. But I've, I've seen examples of demo designs, so this is a future actual power plant, where the, the magnets alone cost like 25% of the whole project. So there are huge savings to be made if you can actually reduce the cost so how is the cost going down along with uh, with these better improved uh, production capabilities the cost per unit area of current as it were to how much current you can get through a, a wire or something cable for your money has been going down yes um and that's actually where some of the the, the fastest increases i'd say have been have been happening is just yeah. physically you know how do you how do you make something um which can carry this current. And these materials are strange, like as Paul said. Um, these are tapes. You know, you can't just do what you normally do with with a, with a wire quite as easily because um, you know they they have different properties depending on the their, their angle of the tape compared to the system and all this kind of thing. Um, so, just how do we make? How do we use those tapes? How do we build them into some structure that can be wound and used in an actual large scale um, device? And has been a massive area of research. So that's been one of the big areas where development has driven down the kind of effective cost um, for, for yeah. applications. I think at the moment, superconductors like niobium-310 and niobium-titanium are more economical. So where a high-temperature superconductors are useful at the moment are in being able to operate where those superconductors can't. So they can go to higher magnetic fields and higher currents so if you need that high magnetic field, then you've got to use a high temperature superconductor. But as Alex said, those costs are continually coming down. So at some point in the future, we might see the day when it becomes more economical to use a high temperature superconductor, even where you could be using a low temperature superconductor normally. Um, I think that definitely might be the case for Niobium 310 at some point in the future. But probably not niobium titanium because that is rather cheap to make. Yeah, niobium titanium has the has got quite a high production um, because yeah. it's been 
used as the workhorse for MRI magnets for decades now. Yes. Um, and so people make a lot of it. Uh, it's really easy to use because it's ductile. It's easy to just put put it in the shape you want, more or less. Um, and it's well understood. Um, so isn't that's going to be king in its relative regime for a while? There are a couple of contenders from some new ones like magnesium diboride, but it's 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 quite comfortably going to be around. Uh, it's still what we would call it operates at what we would call low fields. Absolutely. They um so you can't really make a magnet above maybe five tesla with niobium titanium. The um after that you've got to be looking at your niobium three ten and then beyond that your high temperature superconductors. Yeah, so just as just as um temperature destroys superconductivity if you go too hot, you reach yeah. some transition point and suddenly you can't put any current through your superconductor without resistance anymore. Magnetic fields destroy it as well. And therefore and the critical magnetic field, the upper critical magnetic field, um which determines the, the maximum field your superconductor can operate um in some some way in uh is is much lower for the kind of niobium titanium than it than, than yeah absolutely compared to the the, the high temperature superconductors which are so high it's difficult to measure exactly where they are yeah <laughs> the high temperature superconductors if you make a magnet out of them the magnet will break before the magnetic field destroys the superconductivity because the steel it will literally have enough force on it that the steel will be ripped apart. That is actually that's quite powerful. <laughs> Jesus, that's powerful. <laughs> so, where do you see the field of superconductors going in the future? Um, I think really the only way is up. Um, to be <laughs> honest, uh, it's a hugely, hugely growing field at the moment. There's not just in fusion, um, but I think we spoke a little bit about on the grid. Um, we can have superconductors and we can use superconductors to improve our energy efficiency and with the threat of climate change looming energy efficiency is going to be one of the key areas where we try and reduce our carbon production the higher the field of an MRI scanner the better the resolution so you can get these better images from moving to these high field materials maglev trains are another example of a technology that requires superconductors to work so it's a it's a huge area of commercial potential across all sectors. It's definitely a cool place to do some research. That was a great episode. That was a really fun episode. I learned so much. Same. So I think uh, for our many listeners, we would really appreciate if you subscribe to our podcast on whatever app you're listening on. Yeah, and check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Just search A Glass of Seawater and we'll come right up. Finally, just uh, if you can, leave us a review on iTunes. That would be incredibly helpful. That would really help us. It greatly increases the visibility of the podcast, probably more than anything else. And tell all your friends and enemies. That was a really good episode. I enjoyed it and I learned a lot. See you next time for the next glass of seawater. Bye.